Tonight we're going to continue our study in 2 Corinthians. We find ourselves in chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It begins in the first verse. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience and tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit. By sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Paul now asks the Corinthians to consider, to examine, to evaluate his life and his ministry. He then asks the saints at Corinth to enlarge their hearts and make room for him. In verse 11, we've spoken openly to you. Uh, Our heart is open wide, and I'll talk more about that next week. He talks about in this chapter and the next how to conduct an investigation, an examination. He calls for separation in verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. And again, he's going to make a wholehearted appeal for the people to be reconciled to God and to be reconciled to him. Remember, in the first five chapters, Paul has been defending His motives and his ministry. In chapter 5, Paul counts himself an ambassador of Christ with the message of regeneration and redemption and reconciliation. And remember in verse 20, he implores the sinner to be reconciled to God, pleading with them. And then in chapter 6, he implores the saints to be reconciled to God. Few things are more tragic than to receive God's grace and then fail to grow in God's grace. It's to receive the knowledge of God, but for whatever reason to remain forever stunted in a perpetual state of carnality and immaturity. You know, some congregations are proud of their pastors and for good reason, because they have wonderful pastors. The Corinthians have 
maybe the finest pastor of the first century. How is it possible to have such a great pastor and to fail to benefit from his ministry? Imagine somebody asks you, well, who's your pastor? And you use the big names. You talk about Charles Swindoll or John MacArthur or Chuck Smith. And, and people get excited when they hear those words. And can you imagine having a conversation with the Corinthians? Who's your pastor? It's this guy. His name is Saul of Tarsus. Now they call him Paul. He says that he's an apostle. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having Paul as your pastor? So how do they fail to benefit? The people in Corinth are babes. They are immature. Martin Bucer writes, quote, The five tasks of a pastoral care are to seek and to find all the lost, to bring back those who are scattered, to heal the wounded, to strengthen the sickly, to protect the healthy, to feed, to lead, to guide, to guard. Paul is doing all of those things. Again, Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, Paul has been careful to do nothing that would make others stumbles or in any way discredit the ministry. In verses 3 through 10, Paul gives several arguments to prove that his ministry is blameless, unquote. And so the arguments include a discussion of the battle that Paul is waging in verses 3 through 5, the weapons that he uses in verses 6 and 7, the reputation that he's gained in verses 8 through 10, and in verses 4 and 5, Paul Paul describes his sufferings in verses six and seven, the graces that's been given to him by God. And then in verses eight through ten, he contrasts the experiences that are typical of a Christian ministry. You see, there is the Paul that the Corinthians see. And there's the Paul that everyone else sees. Let me see if I can give you an example. You're all mostly mature. I guess most of you have a driver's license and you have a picture on your your driver's license. It's a picture of you. Is it your favorite picture? How how does that happen? You go to get your license. They take the picture and it's always the worst picture ever. Your eyes look like you're maybe on drugs or your mouth is open. Or your hair is all messed up. And so when you want people to get the best impression ever of you, do you show them your driver's license? Or do you show them your glamour shot? As a matter of fact, do you always evaluate pictures on the basis of how well or how bad they make you look? Oh, I look really awful in this picture. But somewhere between your driver's license picture and your glamour shot, which probably both aren't the real you, There's the real you. The real you. People who hear me on the radio, they see me in real life and they go, I had no idea. (laughs) You look so different in real life. I go, I know, I'm I'm really tall on the radio. (laughs) And Paul has this picture of himself. And they have a picture of him. 
And as Paul begins to talk about the reality of ministry and what it means to be a minister, he asks them to carefully consider. Look at verse one. We then as workers together with him, that is Jesus, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Paul is continuing his thought from chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. There's no break in the action. We're ambassadors of Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you as Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then, based on that, as workers together with Jesus, are pleading with you. Some suggest that Paul is addressing the Corinthians and encouraging them to make full use of the grace that's been shown to them. And that might be one of the things that we can take from this text. It might mean something else. He might be give, he might be asking you to give an account of what he's already preached and what he preaches to the unsaved. Paul has spoken of the grace that's been offered by God. He encourages actually pleads with them not to receive the grace in vain. They shouldn't allow the seed of the gospel to fall on barren soil. Rather, they should respond to the message by receiving the source that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so like a lawyer, Paul is pleading his case. And as he's pleading his case, he's saying, look, don't reject God's grace. Don't reject God's goodness. Don't reject God's kindness. The expression as workers together with him, it translates one single Greek word, sin, ner, gonetes. Literally, it means working together with from that word S-Y-N, sin. Paul uses the word together and togetherness more than any other New Testament writer. Because somehow he understands that it isn't the ministry isn't him talking to you, but rather it is us together in the work that God has called us to. We might think of Paul's command not to receive the grace of God in vain. In another way, we could say it in the positive way. Receive God's grace. Receive God's grace and make it count. What does that mean to receive God's grace and make it count? You see, remember, you're saved by grace and you're forgiven by grace. Remember what grace is. It's God's unmerited favor. It's not anything that you ever did. It's not anything that you ever said. So he says you receive God's grace, make it count, make it important. And then in verse two, he says, for he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. When he makes this statement, he quotes Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8, he goes all the way back in time and space to the prophet Isaiah and quotes this passage. Why? Why does he call? Why is he quoting this passage in this context? I'm going to suggest to you the context in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 7, is God's controversy with his people. In Isaiah chapter 49, God is arguing with the people of Israel. He's arguing with the people in Jerusalem. 
over the rejection of God's Messiah. Basically, it's a prophetic statement that says, guess what? I love you and I'm going to send a Messiah to save you. And he sees through the prophet the hardness of heart and the people rejecting God and rejecting God's Messiah. The Lord is rejected by the nation and it's seen in the prophetic death of Jesus. And now in verse 8, 49 verse 8, we have the words of Jehovah assuring the Lord Jesus that his prayer has been heard and that God would help him and preserve him. In Isaiah chapter 49 verse 8, in an accepted time I've heard you. And in the day of salvation, I've helped you in the context. It's the Lord God saying to God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus, I've heard your prayer and I am going to preserve you and bring you back to life. It's actually a prophetic statement that Jesus is crying out to God, saying, I've given them a message of hope and they haven't accepted the the message. Not only have they not accepted the message, but I'm going to die. And God's response to the God's Messiah is, guess what? In an acceptable time, I've heard you. And in the day of salvation, I've helped you. How? I'm going to bring you back to life. The Lord Jesus is going to come back to life in the day of salvation. This refers to the resurrection of Jesus. The acceptable time and the acceptable date of salvation would be ushered in by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so the emphasis is on the acceptable time then the accepted time and the acceptable time and the accepted time is guess what? Jesus has lived and he's died and he's come back to life. And because he's come back to life, guess what? Your sins can be forgiven and you can be reconciled to the Father. That's what he's saying. And if he's saying that, in a sense, what I'm going to suggest to you, that Paul is talking to two groups of people. He's giving an example of the message of salvation that he gives, but he's also reminding the make-believer who's in the crowd who for whatever reason has never confessed their sin and and has never come into a right relationship with God and Christ, that now's the time to do it. Paul seizes upon the truth and announces to the unbeliever and to the make-believer the era that Isaiah prophesied about has come. It's now. And he urges people to trust the Savior. In the day of salvation. And you know what that day is. It's today. It's every day. That you're alive. That you can come to Christ. And so he makes the announcement. Today is the day of salvation. And then he talks about his concern for consistency. Paul's plea then leads to Paul's priority in ministry. Look in verse three. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. Here's what he's saying. It's important as a minister to give no offense in anything. Why? Paul knew that there would be people who would say, you know what? That church, it's a joke. And that minister is a hypocrite. There are always people who are looking for a reason to reject or refuse the message of salvation. And there's no reason or excuse that seems to be more compelling than to go to a place and watch a person 
and go, does he really believe what he's saying? Then why why doesn't his life and his ministry reflect that? If Paul's first command is receive God's grace and then make it count, the second is cultivate credibility in ministry. And again, what better excuse than to look at the inconsistent life of the preacher. And Paul is basically saying, guess what? That can't be the word offense, by the way, is the Greek noun proskope. It's found only here in the New Testament. It comes from a verb proskopto, which means to stub your toe or to hit your toe against a rock. When you were a kid, did you ever like run around barefooted? I did. I lived in the desert and there are stickers everywhere. I was also born with a shortened Achilles tendon. So if you're wondering why I walk on my toes, it's because I was born with a congenital birth defect. And so every once in a while, I walk on my toes because I don't have an Achilles tendon and my foot doesn't want to go all the way flat. And because my foot doesn't want to go all the way flat, When I was in the second and the third grade, they gave me Frankenstein boots to wear. I don't know if you've ever seen Frankenstein boots, but they're very large boots that have iron shackles on them. And it was intended to get me to walk heel, toe, heel, toe. But it never worked. And I would always throw them away. And then I would walk on my toes anyway. And when I would walk on my toes, I would stub my toes. And because I would stub my toes, they were always bleeding and bloody. And it was really frustrating for my mom. But that's actually what this word means. It means to stub your toe. It means to stub your foot against a rock or an obstacle. Thayer suggests that the entire phrase came to mean something that when you're walking in such a way to cause a person to stumble or to lead them into error or to lead them into sin. And so Paul is basically saying, don't do anything that would cause anyone to stumble into error or into sin. As my friend Sammy Tanago is fond of saying, confine your offense to the gospel. If you're saying rude or weird things, make sure that the thing that is offensive is the fact that you're asking people to understand and realize the plan of God includes the sacrifice of Jesus. If someone is offended by the gospel, so be it. So we might think of this as not putting a stumbling block in anyone's way. The New American Standard translates this, giving no cause for offense in anything. The NIV says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path. So we're not looking for a way to trip you up or make you think something different from what the Bible wants you to think. That our ministry may not be blamed Mo may oh may I. It's found only here and in chapter 8, verse 20. The minister conducts himself in such a blameless way that his ministry will not be discredited. <laughs> How can the ministry be discredited or dishonored? I think you know the answer. Particularly if you've ever gone to any church. Including this church. How do you make a person want to leave your church? Break a promise. Take advantage of people. Exploit them. 
abuse them, live hypocritically, be unfaithful, compromise the truth, get greedy, expect special treatment. And guess what? People will leave. That's how you discredit the ministry. You discredit the ministry by living in a way that is entirely inconsistent with what the New Testament asks you to do. Do you know what the apostle's doing? He's basically saying, live your lives with integrity. Say what you mean. Mean what you say. But how does that work itself out in the day-to-day experience of the ministry? Paul is going to tear down the ivory tower of wishful thinking and give a realistic assessment of what ministry really means. He's going to basically address the issue. Okay, what is ministry all about? What does it mean to be a minister? You've asked about my ministry. You've challenged my ministry. You've you've suggested that I've been unfaithful or hypocritical or I've compromised the truth or that I've, I've lived greedily. But look what he says in verse four. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience And in tribulation, in need, and in distresses, Paul pleads his case. He gives priority, and now he reviews his sufferings, that is, his pain. Paul has been beaten. Paul has been imprisoned. Paul has faced angry mobs. Paul has worked to the point of exhaustion. Paul has endured sleepless nights and hunger. By the way, does that sound like a self-serving charlatan who's in it for the money? Yeah, I don't think so either. By the way, what he says, but in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers or servants of God in much patience. That word patience is an interesting word. It's the word that we come across over and over again in the New Testament. It's the word hoopamoni. I like it because it reminds with spumoni, which is my favorite Italian ice cream. Hoopamoni means endurance. Paul describes In all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, read endurance. It's not just being polite and it's not just being pleasant with people. It's not just being polite on the radio. It's not just being polite in real life. It's not just being polite with all of the local churches. It's not just being polite to those who are hurt and those who are afflicted. Or for whatever reason, those people who are trying to get Paul to to leave the path that's been assigned to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Paul's way of saying, guess what? We have with persevering patience addressed all of these issues. William Barclay defines the word hupomone endurance this way. He says, quote, It doesn't describe the frame of mind which can sit down with folded hands and bowed head and and let a torrent of trouble sweep over it in passive resignation. It describes the ability to bear in such a triumphant way that it changes you. It transfigures you. It changes you from the inside out. That's the kind of transformation that Paul is describing. So now Paul gives what we might call a series of triplets, three sets of three. He'll describe inner struggles. He'll describe outer struggles. He'll describe private disciplines of commitment. 
Look what the words that he uses. Tribulations, needs, distresses. If you're wondering about the ministry, if you've ever said to yourself, I think I want to be in the ministry. I think I want to be used by God. I think I want to devote my life to the Lord in service to the Lord. Well, that's a commendable thing. And so Paul says, "Okay, this is what it means to be a minister. You put up with people, you put up with churches, you put up with people who try to to mislead you and misguide you. And then there's tribulations, then there's needs, then there's distresses. We might think of these as troubles independent of human agency, tribulations, needs, distresses. These are things that you have no power over, no control over, afflictions which might be avoided, necessities which cannot be avoided. Straits is one translation. The idea is a situation where you don't seem to to indicate that there's any way of escape. In verse 5, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. You know what stripes are? Beatings. That's what he's talking about. By stripes, he doesn't mean... Stars and stripes. He's he means where a person takes a dowel, a rod, and then beats you. Not just to the point of exhaustion, to the point where you pass out. So stripes are inflicted by men. That's serious. In other words, he's talking about being beaten on a regular basis. He seems to put stripes or being beaten as something serious, but not as serious as imprisonments. That's more serious. So he says, okay, here's what I've had to deal with. Beatings. Imprisonments. Do you think Paul wants to go to jail? I don't think he does. Not because he's afraid to go to jail. Or he's afraid what people might think because he's gone to jail. The thing that he is most distressing to him about imprisonments is it causes the work, at least from his point of view, to come to a halt. And then tumults. You may not know what tumults are. These are things which might force him to abandon the work altogether. When a tumult took place, when you read the word tumult, think of riot. Do you remember when he is in Ephesus and a riot breaks out and people are beaten and they, or when he's in Philippi and people are beaten and then he's tossed into prison or when he's Damascus and they they make a vow that they are not going to eat or drink until he is dead. Or he goes to Jerusalem and once again the people make a vow that they're not going to eat and drink until he is dead. That's pretty serious. It forces him to abandon the work altogether. And so if stripes are beatings... And if these sufferings that are mentioned in chapter 11 of verse 23 of this of this book, and then again in Acts chapter 16, verse 23, you begin to understand again something. Does this sound like a person who's in it for the money, who's in it for the glory, who's in it because he might have a radio program or a television show in the not too distant future? The last triplet in verse five One Bible writer states, quote, 
consists of those troubles which he took upon himself in the prosecution of his mission, unquote. He goes on to say there is an order in this triplet also, and perhaps what one may call a climax, koi po, disturb the day, agrenei, the night, nestei, both day and night, kapos, labors. The kapos is hard labor, hard work, sleeplessness, watchings. Watchings is the idea of a constant necessity of being on the lookout, alert to the schemes of the devil, the enemies of the gospel. It's where you stay up all night because if you don't, whatever's out there might get you. When my wife was in Africa just recently, one of their times that they spent was out in the wild and she is in a tent and Maasai warriors would stand guard outside of the tent because just 170 yards away was a leopard. So what happens if you leave your tent unescorted? You know, we have dangers and issues that we have to face. And so when Paul is writing about sleeplessness, I think it means more than just not being able to go to sleep. It means being on the lookout for everything that prevents sleep. At Troas, when Paul preached, remember he preached past midnight and longer. It meant to forego sleep in order to work. Nestei, it was connected with prayer and food deprivation. It meant foregoing food. But this isn't fasting. This isn't where you go, I've decided not to eat because I'm going to devote myself to prayer and fasting. I'm going to pray and read my Bible and think about God. There are two kinds of abstention from food. There's voluntary and involuntary. And here it probably means Hunger that's been forced by poverty. And so he goes, this is what it means to be a minister. Selflessness. Sacrifice. He talks about nine different kinds of hardships, but then he talks about nine provisions that are given in verses six and seven. Look what he says by purity, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. Here's part of the point. How in the world has Paul been able to endure these things that he's just described? What causes him to keep going forward in spite of all of the things, the labor, the watchings, the stripes, the imprisonments, the riots? What keeps him going? It's God's patience and God's love and God's power. And then he gives this dramatic list. Not just of the things that he's endured, but now of the virtues Purity, hagnotes, only here in chapter 11, verse 3, it's the purity, hagnos, it means pure. But what he's making reference to is a moral purity, a blamelessness. I think implied in this isn't just moral purity, I think he's making reference to a sexual purity. In other words, he doesn't involve himself in things that are wicked or that are unholy. And so he talks about purity. And then the ministry he conducts is in purity, personal purity, and then knowledge, 
I need you to understand what that means. Not ignorance. Remember what knowledge is. It's the opposite of ignorance. This is divine knowledge that's been imparted by Jesus through God's Holy Spirit. This is evident in the broad scope of truth. Divine truth that's revealed in Paul's writings. So when you read the book of Romans, when you read the book of Corinthians, when you read Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians, and you're reading all of these wonderful things and principles that Paul has written. These aren't things that he's just gotten off of the Internet that he's decided to share with the people. These are the supernatural provisions and principles that God has given by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you and I could live lives that are God honoring and God pleasing. That's what he's talking about. Purity, knowledge. And then he talks about long suffering. Now I want you to just think about this. As he uses the word long suffering, you would think that the Corinthians wouldn't need any proof whatsoever. Is Paul patient? Has Paul put up with a lot from them? I want you to think about this for just a moment. Paul has borne with their sin, with their carnality, with their immaturity. With their failings. With their foolishness. By the way. How patient are you. With carnality. Immaturity. Foolishness. Are you able to. With long suffering. Say I expect a one year old to act like a one year old. I expect a three year old to act like a three year old. For those of you who have kids, do you get angry and upset with your three year old and you go, Why you're acting like a Oh, that's right, you are three. That makes perfect sense to me that a three year old would act like a three year old. So Paul, purity, knowledge, long suffering. Kindness. Here, I'm going to suggest to you that kindness means the kind of unselfish generosity demonstrated in selfless giving. He gives himself. He has a loving attitude. He has a humble demeanor. And then by the Holy Spirit, this no doubt refers to all that Paul does. He isn't doing it in the power of his own strength. He isn't doing it in the power of his own resources. The Holy Spirit and his humble submission to the Holy Spirit. Spirit gives him the resources and the tools in order to go forward in the ministry. And then he talks about love unfeigned. There's no pretense or hypocrisy. There's a genuine sincerity as he lovingly tries to deal with people. In verse 7, look what it says, by the word of truth, by the power of God, the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. So he's talked about purity, that's one. Knowledge, that's two. Long-suffering, that's three. Kindness, that's four. The Holy Spirit, that's five. Sincere love, that's six. And now the word of truth, that is the ministry carried out in obedience to the word of truth. This could also mean... Honesty in ministry. And I think probably that's what it does mean. And then he talks about number eight in the power of God. That means dependent on the strength that God provides. Some suggest that this might also, when he talks about the power of God, be a reference to the miraculous 
ministry that he is experiencing. In other words, God is using Paul in a miraculous way in order to authenticate the message of the ministry. But he's making it abundantly clear that this miraculous ministry isn't because of some special thing that's associated with him. It's a miraculous ministry that's been entrusted to him by God in order to affirm the message of the gospel of people having a right relationship with God in Christ. And then he talks about the armor of righteousness and he uses the expression on the right hand and on the left. I'm going to suggest to you that this is an idiomatic expression because in the ancient world when you had armor and he's using the illustration of the armor with the left hand you would hold your shield and with the right hand you would hold your sword. And so when he's talking about the armor of righteousness he's talking about The shield, which is a defensive weapon, he's talking about the sword, which is an offensive weapon. In other words, he's talking about he is capable of carrying out spiritual warfare in both an offensive and defensive sense. He is willing to exercise offensive tactics and defensive tactics. I'm going to suggest to you that I think he's talking about apology, that is apologetics defense in order to give a sound summation of why he believes what he believes, and then offense, which in this case means evangelism. Because there's spiritual warfare taking place. That's the armor of righteousness. And by the way, armor, hoplon, was originally a word that meant a tool or an instrument. It's used that way in Romans chapter 6, verse 13. It's always in the plural form in the New Testament. It often means weapons and is so described that way when it talks about the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual. And so for all of the nine triplets of difficulty, disasters and distresses, he brings out all of the resources of God in order for him to continue to minister. And then he talks about this Christ-like contradiction. You might read this and you might think, what is Paul doing? What is he talking about? He's listing a series of paradoxes. Now, remember, a paradox is an apparent but not real contradiction. A paradox is when you lay two things down and you consider them carefully in light of each other. And so in verse eight, he says, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report as deceivers and yet true. What in the world is he saying? He's saying, I'm honest, but I've been called a liar. That's what he means. I am honest, but I've been called a liar. The word honor is doxa. It's elsewhere elsewhere translated glory. Evil report and good report. Evil means slander. Unknown and yet well known. Dying, yet we live chastened and not killed. So Paul is basically saying he's known by Christ, but he remains in relative obscurity. He's dying, yet he lives. Verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing all things. Paul is basically saying 
sorrowful, but rejoicing, poor, but continuing to make many people rich, possessing nothing, yet possessing everything. So what does Paul sorrow over? What's he sorry about? I'm going to suggest to you that he's sorrowing over the rejection of the gospel message. I'm going to suggest to you that he's sorrowing over failures of God's people. I'm going to suggest to you that he's sorrowing even over his own personal shortcomings and failings. Sorrowful. I wish everyone would accept Christ. Sorrowful. I wish everybody would conduct themselves in a way that was honoring and pleasing to God. Sorrowful. I wish. I wish. I wish that my practice was always consistent with my preaching, but sometimes it's not. So you want to be patient, but then you're impatient. You want to be kind, but then you're rude. You want to be selfless, but then you're selfish. And he sorrows. Yet, he rejoices. Why? When Paul thinks about the Lord Jesus, when he thinks about the promises of God, when he thinks about all that Jesus has said and all that Jesus has done, he lifts his head and he looks to heaven and he begins to rejoice. And so the true minister experiences the mountaintops and the valleys and then everything in between. Because people see his driver's license photo. And his glamour shot. And realize that even though both pictures are a picture of the pastor, that somewhere in between that driver's license and the glamour shot is the real you. Paul is admired for his zeal and his courage. But then he's condemned by a whole nother group of people. A.T. Robertson says of these sentences, Paul lets his imagination loose and it plays like lightning in the clouds. Did you, any of you see the thunderstorm yesterday or today? You see the lightning just fill up the sky. It is so bright and dramatic. And that's how Paul is. So bright. So dramatic. And Paul's life, of course, is a life of daily dying, dying, but he lives. He is threatened. He is hunted. He is pursued. He is persecuted. He is imprisoned. And then he gets out. And he pursues freedom in order to preach again. I read something when I was preparing this message. There was a group of people over the age of 95 and they were asked, if you could live your life over again, what would you do differently? And their answers really were interesting. And they fell into three dominant categories. They said that they would reflect more. They said that they would risk more. They said that they would do more that would somehow make a difference in the very world in which they were living because they were asking and they were answering the question what is the appropriate 
an important contribution that I have made in this world. You know, for some of us, it's going to be our children or it's going to be our grandchildren. But tell me about your life. If you were asked that same question, if you could live your life over again, what would you do differently? Would you reflect more? Would you risk more? Would you do more? Not for yourself, but for Christ. You know, it's interesting to me. God had only one son. And the life that he chose for his son was the life of a minister. I have three boys. I'm proud of each and every one of them. All of them have chosen service. My oldest son is an army officer, and I couldn't be more proud of him. My middle son has chosen the life of ministry. He's a servant and a minister. My youngest son, a servant and a minister. Oddly enough, I didn't choose this life for them. They chose the life for themselves. After seeing the mountains and the valleys and seeing all of the space in between of seeing the headache and the heartache and the joy. After experiencing the condemnation and the criticism, but also the joy that comes when a person's life is forever changed because they've entered into a right relationship with God in Christ. It was the Puritan preacher Richard Baxter. He gave this advice to pastors. He said, and I give this advice to my sons. If they're the only ones who listen to this message, then it will have been worth it. Richard Baxter says, quote, we must feel toward our people as a father towards his children. Yea, the most tender love of a mother must not surpass ours. We must even travail. That means labor in birth till Christ be formed in them. They should see that we care for no outward thing, neither liberty nor honor nor life in comparison with their salvation. That's Paul's ministry. Paul's ministry is one of leadership like a father, love like a mother. He himself will elsewhere state, I will do what is necessary until you have been conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees his role as pastor, as one who makes sure that you come to full term so that your eyes and your nose and your mouth and your fingers and toes are fully formed and your lungs function and that everything about you will be mature in Christ. And so we see the minister's ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that uh, service is difficult. 
And ministry is challenging. And Heavenly Father, we know that there are joys and there are difficulties. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've made a provision that in sorrow, in difficulty, in obstacle, in setback, that Lord, you have given us a bridge that we can walk across. You've given us an opportunity to worship you. You've given us the privilege of growing in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. You've given us an opportunity to serve so that we will be changed on the inside as well as the outside. And so, Father, we look forward to the ministry that you've called us to and the opportunities that you're going to entrust to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Second.